Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Today we are talking about trauma, its impact on a person's life, and how we can treat it. Our guide is Ruth Cohn, a psychotherapist and BCIA certified neurofeedback practitioner. She specializes in working with individuals who experienced trauma, along with their partners and families. She's authored numerous books and articles, including the recent Working with Developmental Trauma of Childhood Neglect, Using Psychotherapy and Attachment Theory Techniques in Clinical Practice. I spoke with her about trauma as a neurophysiological phenomena and about the somatic-based interventions, especially neurofeedback, that are effective in the healing process. Please note that for the first minute or so, we were experiencing some technical difficulties, so Ruth's recording is not of high quality. So you, you've been working with trauma since the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder was developed, and you also have an interest in neuroscience. Therapists don't always consider their clients from a neurological perspective. How do you think about trauma as a brain and nervous system issue? Thank you for that question. It's a really interesting one. And I'm dating myself now. I, I am 67 years old. I've been in this world for a long time and in this field for a long time. And I remember when I was just starting out, there was a very quirky psychiatrist who I actually am not fond of at all named Daniel Amen. And he said one thing that stayed with me that made so much sense. He said, you know, psychotherapists are the only healthcare people that don't even look at the organ they treat. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. Not only did we not study it, but we didn't even look at the organ we treat. I mean, the worlds of psychotherapy and the brain were like different universes until Bessel. Now, I stumbled across Bessel van der Kolk in the early 80s, and he was a young doctor. Nobody ever heard of him. And he started talking about brain aberrations in, in trauma processing and what happens in the brain during overwhelming experience. So he defined trauma as overwhelming experience and basically explained in very, very simple terms what happens in the brain when um, trauma occurs, which is a real aberration in information processing that disrupts the ability to think and speak, and all the blood runs to the extremities, and you're basically running from a tiger. And that's what the um, brain and body do under trauma. And he had this um, famous brain scan that I that I saw, which I proceeded to make copies of. I had a poster size copy that I hung in my office and that I um, made smaller versions of that I had hanging everywhere of the brain when um, it's overwhelmed by a traumatic experience. And by definition, trauma is overwhelming experience. So all the natural circuits get basically blown off and the whole brain in this scan, which is a photograph of a living brain, is dark, except for the right limbic system, which is all lit up in colors like a Christmas tree. So you see this brightly lit 
right hemispheric limbic system and the rest of the brain completely dark. And I was compelled. Sidebar, I had my own trauma history and I had my own somatic symptoms. I almost died of anorexia at the age of 12 in a time when nobody knew anything about eating disorders. There was nothing. So I was very interested in body-mind um, interactions. And then when Bessel brought the brain into it, I was compelled. So, and sidebar, I grew up in the um, middle 50s and early 60s when girls basically were taught we are stupid in math and science and we're good in humanities and we should sew and cook. And um, so I believed that I was stupid in science. So it was not easy for me to study and learn about the brain, but I was very compelled by it. So that's the long answer to your question about how I got interested in the brain. And I, I came up in a community. I was living at the time in Berkeley, California, where the uh, psychotherapy community was largely very psychoanalytic. And so I, was, I joined this institute um, called the Psychotherapy Institute in Berkeley, and I was a real outlier. I was a real black sheep. But I kept writing articles about the body and the and psychotherapy, and then I started getting interested in the body and the brain, and I was a real black sheep in the world that I lived in. So I looked for these little pockets of somatic therapy that I could attach myself to. So this is body-based therapy to treat what we traditionally think of as psychological issues, but you know, Van der Kroek, as you're saying, and I think particularly uh, probably best known by many people is the the body keeps the score. His his book about that, he really connected the brain changes with uh, the 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 trauma and the post traumatic stress. And in in that picture you were talking about, the most active part of the the traumatized brain is the limbic system, the emotional system. What's your understanding? Why, why does the uh, limbic system get such get so strong uh, after traumatic experience? Well, the limbic system is the base of survival, and basically, the limbic system is the is the home of the fight flight response. Fight and flight is what we do when we're under threat of dying. We want to either run for our lives or we want to fight off whatever it is that is after us. So what happens in brain and body, we don't want to die. We've got this strong instinct to preserve the species. And so we, um, so all the non-essential functions of the entire organism basically shut off so that all the energy comes, becomes available to survival. So if the fight-flight response, the way it originates in the brain and the way the brain basically sends out signals to all the extremities and, and the body to run or fight, all the energy goes to that part of the brain and the other parts of the brain that basically mediate the less essential functions like 
digestion or reproduction or even thinking and speaking. All of those go offline in service of survival. And in post-traumatic stress, in the what we call the disorder, if all the energy is going to fight flight, what are some of the ways that that shows up in a person? I grew up in Vietnam era, and if you've seen the movies, you know, sometimes you'll have a scene where a, a veteran is walking down the street and sees a helicopter, and his whole platoon was blown up by a helicopter, and he was the only one that survives. And so the guy jumps and runs and rolls under a bench and starts screaming, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die, as if it were happening again. What happens in the brain and the body is that when all these other functions of the brain go offline, what that means is ordinary processing of information where it gets translated into language and stored in the um, in the area of the brain that basically logs autobiographical memory. All that is is offline. So the elements, of stimulus like the visual and the sounds and the smells and the body sensations and the the emotion all get are floating around basically unprocessed in the brain and nervous system and we are so absolutely adamant the brain and body are so hell bent on not having it happen again, that whenever there's a stimulus, even vaguely reminiscent of the trauma, like the helicopter, the person is once again in the experience. Because as Bessel is famous for saying, the nature of trauma is it's not remembered, it's relived. So the helicopter basically brings the memory back as if it were happening right now. And so the person is in it. Once again, they can't think or speak. They're back in this speechless terror, running from a tiger. He's hiding under a bench, and he thinks it's happening now when that's just an innocuous helicopter that has nothing to do with anything. So... That's what happens in the brain and body in post-traumatic stress because life is filled with helicopters, benign helicopters. And I work a lot with couples and couples are helicopters to each other constantly, which is why they have these ferocious fights as if they're, you know, saving their lives. And the other one says, I didn't do anything, just like that helicopter going by didn't do anything. But the brain is convinced it's happening again. So they jump and run and hide and, and, and fear. And they keep reliving that trauma over and over and over again, which is what happened for years until we started getting treatments that began to enter a different way than through thinking and speaking, which we can't do when we're in trauma. Right. So the, the limbic system, the emotional part of the system, takes all of the energy and processes the data because it interprets what's going on as a threat. So it kind of takes over. 
And the limbic system has no sense of time. That's right. So what's happening is happening in that in that moment. And I imagine that uh, sort of thinking about neuroplasticity, you know, the, uh, neurons that fire together, wire together, it has a lot of practice doing that and gets better and better. It's, I, guess, I guess the dark side yeah. of neuroplasticity or something. It's, now, you, you, you talk about as we are getting new uh, interventions, new treatments that don't rely on cognition or early rational cognition, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, I guess sort of, sort of the most obvious ones are things like uh, prolonged exposure, which, which tries to reteach the limbic system through experience. Can you talk maybe about, about exposure or, th- or some of the other kind of non-rational cognisti- co- cognitive uh, approaches to treating trauma? Absolutely. Well, if you read The Body Keeps the Score, which I think everybody has by now, and if they haven't, they must, because it is the kind of Bible of the of the young trauma field. Basically, the The Body Keeps the Score is kind of like the history of my career. Because I was following Bessel, and so everything that Bessel talked about, I began to pursue. Now, the first thing we got in the, um, you know, we started out before Bessel with the talking cure. That was all we had. That's what Freud called it. Then we got Wilhelm Reich, who was very, un, you know, kind of outside the box. And he um, basically died in prison and somewhat crazy. But um, we began to get body approaches. They were way outside the mainstream. And little by little, we began to discover, and I, like I said, I was a veteran of an eating disorder starting in a time when nobody knew anything. So I was well, well versed in the fact that you couldn't find your way out of a somatic dilemma by thinking and speaking. It just didn't get me anywhere. And I was miserable for decades trying to find my way out of this. So the first thing we got, which was a slow but beginning, was antidepressants. We got Prozac, and Prozac was supposed to be this really big sort of new cure that was going to solve everything now that, you know, talk therapy wasn't enough. Well, that became a mega billion dollar industry didn't really solve the problem, caused a lot of sexual problems, which certainly became a lot of my practice later. But um, so from there, we started getting different somatic approaches. Um, um, Among the first of them was exposure therapy. We later learned that catharsis, which is what exposure therapy basically does, is um, re-traumatize the system. But we didn't know then. So what, what people were doing, and I worked at the VA hospital for one year to the day, and I think every psychotherapist should do a short stint at the VA just to see how trauma is viewed and dealt with in that area and also what war veterans um what they do and don't get because it's really tragic. Anyway, I worked in the VA, and all we really had at that time was the beginnings of exposure therapy, and people were re-traumatized. And what I saw in the VA was that it was like a revolving door. 
that, I mean, apart from the fact that the VA basically rewards people for staying symptomatic, which means if you get better, your benefits get cut. So it was a revolving door there. And all we had besides talk and group talk therapy was the beginnings of exposure therapy, which we rapidly learned was re-traumatizing. So then people started to explore other, other approaches. And even in the trauma field, Bessel really had to stick his neck out to talk about the body. And he really put himself out there in ways that he lost a lot of ground with a lot of people because talking about the body was way outside the box back then. And then we got Peter Levine and Pat Ogden and somatic experience and sensory motor psychotherapy and some of the other um, body approaches which you may have heard of, which are kind of escaping me right now. And so little by little, we started learning about working with the body. And I started studying all these different modalities to basically address the brain and the body and how to kind of get to trauma in other ways that could make a difference. And ultimately, at one of Bessel's trauma conferences, I heard Seaburn Fisher speak about neurofeedback. Neuro, um, and that was a real game changer for me because it really shifts the focus to the brain. And that was when I really started studying the brain. I should say, though, that there was one conference I went to in 2003, and there was this young, brand fresh, spanking new medical resident. She was uh, she had just gotten out of medical school. She was one of Bessel's students, and she, her name was Ruth Lanius. And she came in, and she was God. She was like probably in her early twenties then. And she showed a, um, she presented a case where one of the things that she showed was the brain of a woman in the scanner who'd been in this horrendous traumatic experience and went into a freeze response. And her brain was completely, completely dark. I mean, there was nothing firing in her brain. And the whole room, I can remember it as if it was yesterday, the entire room just went, <gasps> It was like this gasp in the room because none of us had ever seen what can happen in the brain of a traumatized person. So when I heard Seaburn speak, and this was what I trained in neurofeedback in 2009, so it was probably 2008 or the end of 2008 when I heard Seaburn speak about neurofeedback. And that was a game changer for me. I had been practicing EMDR. I'd been practicing sensory motor psychotherapy. I'd been studying somatic experiencing, learning everything I could. When I learned neurofeedback, when I first experienced it as a client and then began to train in it and practice it, I was so compelled that everything else has sort of gone by the side because neurofeedback is a game changer. And one last thing I'll say about neurofeedback that I love is that people were so tired and also so traumatized from talking about their trauma story. And many of them didn't even remember it, but had to relive the feelings all the time. And to have to go there to begin to do work was 
really troubling and traumatic and agonizing for many of them. And neurofeedback doesn't require that. We can work on the trauma without having to enter the re-experiencing of the trauma. And as we become more able to tolerate emotion, then we get more language. Then we can begin to process verbally what we never had access to. So that seemed like it really put the horse before the cart, so to speak, um, finally, instead of the other way around. So I'm passionate about neurofeedback, which you can see. I think a statement about the power of somatic interventions to see that there have been more developed from since medications, since prolonged exposure, even in the VA now, they're using not just prolonged exposure, but EMDR is now an, considered an official treatment, so is um, cognitive processing therapy. And there have been studies uh, either in the, in, in the, um, the VA's or with veterans uh, looking at uh, heart rate variability with trauma. So Gabrielle Tan has published on that. And of course, uh, with neurofeedback, uh, the Othmer's um, work has shown, yeah. they've done a lot of work with veterans and PTSD as well. But I wonder if you could talk about what's your basic approach using neurofeedback with someone who does have uh, PTSD? My approach, right. Okay, and one of the sad realities of the neurofeedback field, which a lot of people are familiar with, is for a small field, and as we all know, the research money is in big pharma. Big pharma doesn't like um, non-pharmaceutical solutions. Neurofeedback is very effective as a non-pharmaceutical solution for many problems. So obviously, the research money and most of the government research money, the big pharma research money and the government research money has not gone to things like neurofeedback. So the result of that has been, as Seaburn says, there's not enough salmon. Seaburn says, the polar bears get along great when there's plenty of salmon. And when there's not enough salmon, they fight. And in the neurofeedback field, there has perennially, since the beginning, been not enough salmon. So it is a tragically fragmented field. And the Othmers are some of the founders of neurofeedback, and they're really brilliant. And I don't, I was, it was a little bit before my time that there was kind of like a falling apart of branches of the neurofeedback field, and the authors went one way, and another camp went the other way. Now we have more than that. There's another um, sort of splinter group called lens neurofeedback, which is not even neurofeedback because it emits a signal as opposed to simply feedback, like a biofeedback um, approach. So we've got these now little sort of um, tributary fields. So the authors continue to be kind of like Freud and Reich. They're kind of um, forefathers that by many are not fully respected or appreciated. By many, they still are. So the authors have developed an approach which, to be honest, I don't fully understand. I don't understand the science of it. But they have an approach that they call infraslow, which is their um, biofeedback or their... Um, their brain training approach is 
um, is at frequency levels that are much lower than are naturally encountered in the brain. And they claim great results, and many practitioners do, and and some of the other groups, Bessel included, are starting to be curious about the infraslow to figure out what's going on there and if they're training glia, which are traditionally thought of as the custodial cells of the brain. We don't, I don't know how um, infraslow works, but the Othmer approach is pursuing that infraslow direction. Now, Seaburn's approach and the one that I use is more what we call the arousal model. And the arousal model is based on the premise that the brain fires at at uh, different frequencies that we've got certain um, brain wave um, brain waves that that fire at in ranges that are thought to be quote unquote normal or basically a comfortable sense of well being range and um, in trauma what we have found is that for the most part the brain goes way above the window of tolerance or the window of kind of comfortable function. So we've got these high frequencies and we're practicing neurofeedback in that biofeedback um, basic approach to train the brain into the range of comfortable, safe, and functional um, firing. So basically, the arousal model is bringing down the arousal in the brain frequencies to what we conceive of as a desired or an optimal range for that brain. That's a very crude way of describing the arousal model. Now, one of the things that we find with trauma brains, and um, and I'm a, basically a student of neglect, neglect is a very sort of complicated um, animal, so to speak, because Parts of the brain are extremely hyper-aroused, and other parts are way under-aroused. So we're training some brain areas up and some brain areas down. But to answer your your original question, what's my approach to neurofeedback? And I've been a student, I've been a blessedly grateful student of Seaburn since my training in 2009, and I'm so grateful to her because she's brilliant. She's the, our best mind in neurofeedback in trauma in the world, I believe. And um, so she teaches, and I basically follow her very closely, the arousal model, which is where we're training. We're basically working on bringing arousal into that desired range. So are you starting with like a, a quantitative EEG or some other sort of assessment when you're trying to determine where, which frequencies or which areas to train? I know that um, uh, frequently uh, uh, right side is trained, right uh, back side, uh, back of the brain is, is often trained, sometimes just the back of the brain. Uh, how do you kind of make those decisions? Very good question. And once again, there's a wide range about how people approach this. Now, the QEEG, or the quantitative EEG, um, which is expensive, is a procedure whereby 19 brain areas, 19 sites, are fitted with um, electrodes, 
and the measure of the brain, the average brain frequency in those 19 sites is all collected and analyzed and compared with what are assessed to be quote unquote normal controls. And so, like I say, it's an expensive process. And I've had about three um, experiences of my own brain being um, basically having a QEEG done and analyzed. Each time it was about two or $3,000 because I was very curious about it. And I basically didn't learn anything from the Q that I didn't already know from my own experience. And what I learned to do with Seaburn is use a very elaborate assessment interview, which is a verbal questionnaire, which is done in, I do it in person because it, because it becomes very much a way of getting to know the client um, as well as assess their functions in areas that we know to be left brain and right brain functions. And we know that certain bodily experiences correlate to hyper versus hypo arousal. And I'll come back to that. Um, in the case of traumatic brain injury or Seizure disorder, I will refer someone to get a QEEG because there may be aberrations there that I can't get to through a verbal interview. But other than that, I don't use the QEEG as my assessment instrument um, on the whole, although that is a very, very varied um, among practitioners' um, practice. So many clinicians, I'm not trained in administering the QEG. I don't have the equipment. So in my practice, it's a very expensive undertaking because having the Q measurements taken and then analyzed and then having the therapist basically consult with the person who analyzed the data is an elaborate, time-consuming, expensive process that I don't want to put people through unless it's absolutely necessary. So I tend to use the um, Seaburn's assessment interview and with pretty good results. And then I've worked very well, very closely with Seaburn over the years to help me determine the placements of the electrodes and the frequencies, which, and one of the things I love about neurofeedback is unlike many other kinds of psychotherapy, we are constantly constantly evaluating and assessing how we're doing. So if the placement is not right, or if the frequencies are not right, we will know very quickly because the client will tell us that, wow, I couldn't sleep, or wow, I was in a rage, or wow, that was great. I feel so good. So we, we have an ongoing sort of feedback system about how the feedback system is working. You've been listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal, and our guide today to the healthy brain and happy body was Ruth Cohn, a psychotherapist and BCIA-certified neurofeedback practitioner in San Francisco. 
She's also certified in sex therapy and a number of somatic therapies. She's the author of three books and numerous articles. Find out more about her at ruthconemft.com. Remember, you can join NRBS at our virtual conference on October 21st and 22nd with a 25% discount by registering with the code HAPPYLISTENER at nrbs.org. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link in the show notes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really want to hear from you. Be part of this ongoing conversation by contacting us with your thoughts, ideas, and questions at healthybrain at nrbs.org. Leave us reviews as well. It really helps podcasts like this one, which reach more listeners. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body. 